The text is, as you see, from John chapter 4, and I'm reading verses 46 to 54. John 4, 46 through 54. Listen now, if you will, to the inspired word of God. This is speaking of Jesus. And he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And to the reading of the word of God, let us all say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. About five years ago, that's way too far back, God, um, I believe, revived uh, prayer here at Cornerstone in our midst. i got to say that over that time, I've been uh, stunned at how many prayers the Lord's answered. I shouldn't have been stunned. It's my lack of faith, but I was stunned. Um, People meeting and getting married and getting from halfway around the globe here. God healing people that had fatal diseases, potentially fatal diseases. Getting people jobs in a very bad economy. Businesses starting and starting to thrive and thriving in a bad economy. Marriages protected and strengthened, and I could go on and on and on. This is God's work. That's not man's work. You know, I was thinking this week, it's genuinely remarkable how many prayers we find in the Bible. (coughs) And I thought, though God has done all of this in our midst, by God's grace, I don't want to lose, and I don't think we should lose, the momentum and set prayer to the side. So I want prayer constantly to be before us. It's amazing how many teachings... Uh, how many prayers are in the Bible, and how many teachings about prayer are in the Bible. In fact, the Bible is simply full of prayer. You ought to see it. If you read the Bible, you know what I'm talking about. That's why prayerlessness in the church is so, if I may say so, sinister and so satanic. Prayer is a basic, powerful part of Christian living. And the Bible doesn't envision that we can live the Christian life without prayer or that the church can exist without prayer. 
The church in the Bible routinely gets prayers answered, and that's a normal Christian church. Now, if you don't believe this, I would like simply to ask you to read the book of Acts and see how the people of God routinely got prayers answered. In short, if we're not praying and if we're not getting answers to prayer, there's something terribly wrong because this happened routinely in the Bible. Not every prayer by any means, as I'll point out today. But generally, routinely, people in the Word of God, Christians, prayed and got their prayers answered. Now, I'm going to preach today about this remarkable miracle very briefly and directly and I hope simply and point out some critical truths. First of all, the Lord is not annoyed or miffed by big, daring prayers. Did you know that? He's not miffed. He's not annoyed if you come and ask him to do great things. Um, I've read the entire works of uh, perhaps the greatest writer on the topic of prayer in the history of the church, uh, certainly in the English language. He lived about 120 years ago. Do you know who I'm talking about? E.M. Bounds. He was a Methodist, an amazing man who virtually lived on his knees and saw amazing prayers answered. He pointed out something that I'd never really thought of in this light before. He says, never in the Bible do we find an example of Jehovah uh, in the Old Testament or uh, Jesus, for example, in the New Testament, complaining that people ask them to do too, ask them to do too much. What? You come ask me this? Who do you think you are coming to me and asking me to heal? Who do you think you are coming asking me to provide for you? Who do you think you are? Do we find examples of that? But again and again and again, what, for example, does Jesus say to his disciples? What do you like? Why do you lack so much faith? Why do you lack belief? Why are you so unbelieving? Why, why, why? Do you see that? Isn't that totally remarkable? <coughs> this uh, politician's son had this near fatal fever, and he heard that this rabbi from Nazareth was healing the sick, so he approached him and begged him to heal. Now, what's most remarkable in this account isn't that the official asked Jesus to heal his son. Jesus was doing a lot of healing. But Jesus didn't even have to be present to do it. He asked him, Lord, please heal my son. And Jesus didn't say, as he did sometimes, I'll come. Jesus said, go, it's taken care of. And then the man went and his servants came running out to meet him. And they said, it's amazing. Your son was on the point of death with this very high fever. And he's recovering. And he's almost well. And the politician asked when did this happen? He said, oh, it was, uh, it was at the seventh hour, <clears throat> the very time that he asked Jesus. What a remarkable sign. What a remarkable answer to prayer. <clears throat> now, this is very simple. This is very uh, daring faith. Now, God loves to answer big, daring prayers. I'm not implying he's not interested in small prayers for small, ordinary problems. Of course he is. We need to be praying about everything. But he relishes great faith. Don't you earthly fathers relish when your children come and say, Dad, this is something really great and I'd like to do it. And it's something good. It's something legitimate. It's something within your power. 
Would you please, would you please, could you do this? And don't you as a father love to do that for your children? Don't you love to do that? I have a question. Do you think that you're a better father than God the Father is? By no means. It's remarkable. Can you imagine how the Heavenly Father feels when his children have faith that he can do anything for them? Anything. Um, it's remarkable how much faith that we individually and as a church often lack. I was talking a couple months ago with a dear friend on the East Coast. His name is Brian. He lives in uh, Connecticut, sharp guy, graduate of Yale. He uh, works in the uh, medical industry. Um, he'd been recently attending a church. We were talking about prayer. He recently was uh, attending a church, and the church at prayer time prayed that one of the ladies in the congregation wouldn't uh, suffer too much from the chemotherapy she was going through. And after a while, he went home and he started thinking about that. And he thought, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. Why didn't you just pray that God would heal her? Did you think about that? Why didn't you pray? It's just that God is strong enough to ease the, the pain that goes along with this treatment. But apparently, he's not strong enough to heal people. I must say, and I told him this, and he and I agreed, that was not a prayer of great faith. It's amazing. I'm uh, <clears throat> going to read something here to you. It's remarkable how that through the <coughs> week when I think about whether I should preach a sermon, I don't know for sure, and I pray. God just so often gives just a verification in his good providence. I got an email yesterday from, uh, of all people, my mom. And apparently in her church, they got my mom and dad go to church in Lodi, very good church, large church. Their church is putting together a, a devotional for the whole congregation, and I guess asking people in the congregation, a number of writers apparently in the church, just kind of send in devotionals that they'll use to compile for this devotional. My mom's a writer, I guess it runs in the family, and she sent me this, and I just, this was, she's giving just, this is just this is two paragraphs. This is an account of something that happened in our family, I mean, the family I grew up in. I'd completely forgotten her, I don't even think I knew this. It's amazing. Listen to this. She first quotes Psalm 77, 11 about remembering the works of the Lord. And then she writes, There's something about recounting the mercies of God in the past that seems to fan again the flames of faith that have become embers of smoldering doubt in our prayer lives. Are there any among us Christians any amount of time who haven't seen the hand of God in our lives? I think this is why God tells us over and over in his word to remember to forget not all his benefits from Psalm 103. And then she gives this little story I didn't even know. By God's grace, I'll never forget the morning nearly 50 years ago when our firstborn, Andrew, looked at my husband and me questioningly when we told him we couldn't have, then he couldn't have any more cereal and milk because there wasn't any more. In fact, there was no more anything in the house to eat. <clears throat> She writes, oh, and then the blessed memory of the knock that came at the back door, just as the three of us were on our knees in the kitchen, praying for God to supply our need. A woman from the church was standing there with bags of groceries in her hand, and she said that God had, for some strange reason, just laid it on her heart to bring them to us. 
Can you by any chance use them, she asked, hesitantly. And yes, there was cereal and milk in those bags. She says, today that little boy is a pastor, author, much-in-demand preacher and conference speaker and so on. And one of his favorite themes, you guessed it, is prayer. And then she writes this. We will remember, we will remember, we will remember the works of your hand. We will shout and give you praise, for great is thy faithfulness. God loves to answer prayer and demonstrate his greatness. And that leads me to the second thing, and I won't be long, that I want to say. Daring prayer shouldn't consider God's secret eternal counsels, but simply trust in his will revealed in his word. God does have secret eternal counsels. God is the predestinating God. But it's remarkable that in the Bible, it's remarkable that almost nobody when praying considers what God is secretly doing. They consider what God has revealed in his word and pray according to what is revealed and not what's secret. It's remarkable how different our prayers are than the prayers of those in the word. And I would ask you and ask me to, to start restructuring our prayers according to the word of God and not according to our sort of deductions about what God is doing. For instance, we often pray, God, if it's your will, please give us a child. Hannah prayed, Lord, please give me a child. And God gave her Samuel. We pray, Jesus, if it's in your Father's plan, please heal us of this sickness. The disciples prayed, Lord, please put your hand on this deaf and dumb man so that he can be healed. And Jesus healed him. We pray, Lord, if it's part of your great eternal secret will, please send revival to your people and your nation. If it's a part of your great eternal will. But Jehovah says, when I shut up the heavens that there's no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Did you notice something about those prayers? And by the way, 95% of the prayers in the Bible, more than that actually, people pray according to the written word of God. Uh, God's people certainly believe in God's eternal will. They take great comfort in his will. But when we pray, we pray according to his revealed will in the word of God. That's what we pray. That's vital. We don't know the specifics of God's secret will. That's why it's called secret. But God's will in the Bible is not secret. Isn't that wonderful? And by the way, I'm going to say this. I didn't want intending to say this. You don't ever have to pray about the will of God on something that's revealed in the word of God. You don't ever have to pray if something is in the will of God, if it's revealed plainly in the word of God. You don't ever have to pray, well, should I be telling a lie? Well, should I be lazy? Well, you don't have to pray about what God has revealed specifically in his word. We know his will. And I believe if we spent more time considering his revealed will in the word of God and less time trying to figure out his secret will that we don't know, things would be a lot better for us. <coughs> um, <clears throat> Does this mean that God answers every prayer? By no means. <coughs> no father gives his children everything they want. No faithful father would do that. God didn't answer Paul's prayer 
to remove his thorn in the flesh. Paul prayed three times and God said, no, that's not what I want. But he does want to do good things for his children. He wants to do good things for them. That's why Grant Osborne uh, is right. God is sovereign and can say no to our prayer. But we should not expect God to reject our prayers. We should not expect God to reject our prayers. In other words, our attitude in prayer shouldn't be this. God, I know you're probably not going to do this. God, I know your will is sovereign and you really don't want to do good things for your people. And, but you said we're going to pray, so it's really tough. So, I'm exaggerating and being facetious, but you understand the point I'm trying to make. We pray in belief. By the way, that's why when we read the Bible, we come up with some amazing statistics. I was talking to Kelsa this week. I said, why don't you write more on Facebook? She says, because I'm taking a class in stats. And I said, that is the toughest class you will take as an undergrad. Those of you here that have taken it know exactly what I'm talking about. But there are some important stats in the Word. I was reading this week Herb Lockyer's book, All the Prayers of the Bible. I think it was written in 1959. All the prayers of the Bible. He actually read the word of God looking for nothing but prayers. Apart from the Psalms, because the Psalms are just full, full of prayers. It would like double the number. And he came up with some amazing statistics. I urge you to get this book, All the Prayers of the Bible. It's very cheap now because it's, it's out of print, but there are a number of copies available. The, are you ready for this? Here's his count. The Bible records no fewer than 650 definite prayers. 650 of them, he says, of which no less than 450 have recorded answers. Now that's recorded answers. There may be some of these prayers God didn't see fit to tell us the answer. So that's a conservative number. Now, I got my little calculator out because I didn't take stats on my undergrad. I got my little calculator out and found out a fascinating proportion. 450... Out of 650, do you know that is virtually 70% of all prayers in the Bible that God answered? Uh, That's a remarkable proportion. And as I look back on my life and our church, I would say, you know what, I think that's pretty accurate. He answers many more prayers than if we did not pray. And by the way, we have to face this fact squarely. Had this politician not come to Jesus, and had he not begged for the healing of his son, we have no reason to believe that his son would have been healed. You say, well, wait a minute. If this was part of God's predestined plan, God could have healed his son whether he prayed or not. God can do anything. I mean, in harmony with his nature. Yes, he could have done that. But the Bible doesn't invite us to speculate that way. As far as we know from the Bible, he prayed, and he had faith, and therefore... Jesus answered his prayer. And if we don't pray, and if we don't have faith, we have no reason to believe that God will answer. Now that leads us to the last thing I want to say. God answers our prayers in order to demonstrate his might in the world and vindicate his honor. Now we can be very self-centered in prayer and look at it from a self-centered way. Well, I shouldn't pray for God to do too much for me because that's self-centered. So I'm not going to pray. No, we don't understand. God doesn't do it just for us, although he does, because he loves us. God answers prayer to show how great he is. God answers prayer to vindicate his honor in the earth. 
Some of you remember the story of Old Covenant Israel. They lost a strategic battle at uh, Ai. <clears throat> and Joshua <clears throat> came to God and reminded him that if the Jews turned their backs on their enemies and fled, what would the enemies think of God? He was playing up to God's honor. What about this puny little God that can't even protect his people? And then in Judges 6, 13, do you remember? I, these are some of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Gideon comes to God in much the same way. God says to Gideon, you are a mighty man of valor. And Gideon goes, you're talking to me? You're talking to me? I'm out here hiding away, man. You're talking to me? Then he says, if I'm such a mighty man of valor, I love how it says it in the English. If this is true, where are all the promises? He's reminding God of God's covenant promises. What God's promised to Israel. Remarkable. God, you see, is very vulnerable to our appeals to demonstrate his great power, to vindicate his great honor because he desires to be praised and he's worthy to be praised. So when we pray, we need to ask God to exhibit his greatness in the earth. That's how I pray for many of you every day, whether it's um, financial or uh, physical needs or uh, in your Marriage, when I pray for our body as a whole, when I pray for our nation and our culture and all of its declension and apostasy and evil, I pray that God answers prayer to demonstrate his great power, his greatness in the earth. So people look up and say, oh, what a mighty God is this. This is amazing. So they turn to him. God did this with Pharaoh. God did it with Nebuchadnezzar. God did it with Nineveh, the people of Nineveh, and he'll do it today. So when we pray, let's pray big, bold, daring prayers because God likes that. Now, I would say this too in conclusion. Paltry, unbelieving, little anorexic prayers don't honor God. I'm very convicted about that increasingly. Hebrews 3.12 says this. Are you ready for this text? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Oh, man. An unbelieving heart is an evil heart. Oh man, I'm just like lacking faith too many times and this is frightening. He says, the writer of Hebrews, or the writers of Hebrew, there may have been more than one, that an unbelieving heart leads us away from God. So when we pray little anorexic prayers and don't have faith in God, that's an evil heart of unbelief. And if we persist in it, it's amazing how it leads us away from God. We depart from the living God. Let's review. God isn't upset by big, daring prayers. He's upset by an evil heart of unbelief. Two, don't worry about God's secret eternal will that God's doing. Pray in terms of God's revealed will and his inspired, infallible word. And third, keep in mind that God loves to show his might and his power and vindicate himself and his people in the earth. So I have a final question. What great needs do you have? What great needs do your family, does your family have? What great needs does this church have? What great needs does our nation and country and culture have? Then we need to pray big, daring prayers in faith. Remember those stats? 450 out of 650. Those aren't very bad odds. I'd like us to bow our heads and pray now. I'm going to ask my dear friend Michelle to pray that the Lord revives in our heart bold and daring prayer.